You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. verses 1 through 31, and I'm going to take a second and get there on my phone if you want to do the same in your Bible or on your phone. And then whenever you're ready, if you can stand for the reading of God's Word, you're able. Again, it's Acts 4, 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, But what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in all in the, or at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, 
They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truth in the city, there were gathered, or for truly in the city, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're uh, glad you're here, especially if you're visiting with us. Um, we're looking at the book of Acts, and the book of Acts uh, is sometimes called Acts of the Apostles, but it really should be called the Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus Christ, because it's really about his reign, and um, it begins with the ascension in the first chapter, and the rest of it is the disciples being his witnesses around the world, witnesses to the fact that he is reigning in a certain way as a crucified Savior. So... Um, this all sounds like really good news, and so far in the book of Acts, it's all been happy, and it's all been joyful and amazing, signs and wonders, um, until this point. And it's a lot like the story of Jesus. Uh, in fact, Luke patterns the story of the ascended Jesus after the story of the Jesus on earth, because it's the same person, but he's just now writ large. And um, in the same way in the Gospel of Luke, it's all fun and games until the, until the opposition begins uh, with the... Jewish leaders um, beginning to attack Jesus. So now here in chapter 4, we finally see this opposition. Because it sounds like great news that Jesus reigns unless you think you reign. Unless you think you're the king. And we saw that in, in the book of Matthew where King Herod, when he hears that a king is going to be born, the king of the Jews, what does he do? He, he goes to the place where he thinks they're going to be born and he wipes out all the children, hoping that that would take care of the problem. In the same way, these uh, priests... Verse 2, captains of the temple and Sadducees were greatly annoyed because the disciples were proclaiming Jesus. Because they thought that they were the leaders of the temple. They thought they were the leaders of Israel. And actually Jesus is saying, no, I am the temple. And um, I am now the king of the Jews. And they saw 5,000 be- people be converted. And they were, they were not happy about that. They were very threatened by that. They were, <clears throat> their power was threatened. And so... You could say, uh, one theologian I really like, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, he says it's a clash of two temples. It's, in fact, they're right at the temple doorstep. So it's the temple of the living God, Jesus Christ, right there at the doorstep of the old temple. And the old temple guard is very angry that this new temple is growing. The temple, which is the body of Christ. 
And so it's a clash of temples, the dead and the living temple. One is a building, Herod's temple, that has nothing in it. There is no Holy Spirit in that temple. There is no glory cloud. The Shekinah glory is not there. The Holy of Holies is empty because the curtain was torn and the Spirit came out. So you have that dead temple and the living temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his body, which is the church. So it's a clash of two temples. And the first one is the dead temple without the Spirit, without the Holy of Holies, which is based on prestige and power and a desire to control things. And the reality is it's not just the first century Jewish leaders. It's today. You see this in churches today. You see it all the time where it's essentially just a big shell, dead religion. So that's the first temple. And the second temple is exactly the opposite of that. It's um, the Holy of Holies is full. So if we're a living church, then this is like the Holy of Holies and we are the temple of the living God. And so instead of prestige and power, you have renunciation and uh, like putting all the glory onto God and taking the hit and doing whatever it takes to give him all the glory and becoming small so that he might increase, becoming tiny and disappearing. And it's about prayer instead of power. And it's about crying out for help instead of clinging to control. So I'm going to look at those two things, the, the dead and the living, <clears throat> the old temple and the new temple. So first of all, in verse five, um, this is not anti-Semitic. It's, a, it's, been, it's been a terrible heresy in the church throughout the years that many Christians have been anti-Jewish. And um, this is not against Judaism. This is against these this one slice of leadership that's very secular, that's essentially in bed with Rome, and they're just clinging to power. Uh, it's political, as so much of Christendom has been. It's not really the church. It's this political, like, you know, like the, um, the Crusades or the, um, the Spanish Inquisition or the Conquistadors. There's times that uh, the church has gotten in bed with the power politics, and that's what's going on here. These rulers and elders and scribes with the high priests and all who are of the high priestly family. These are all Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection. They were very secular. Um, they went to all the, the great parties in Jerusalem. They were very comfortable. They were a multi-generation aristocracy. So they are empty. They're anti-supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection. That's who this is. These are the ones who want power. And they see the living temple. They see that the spirit has been transferred to the church. And they see the signs and wonders of Christ's reign. They, this man was, was healed in their very midst. We saw that last week. That this man who was crippled for 40 years. He's now, it says, uh, walking and leaping and praising God. And when they see that, what is their response to this person who's come back to life? Whose entire life has been transformed, who's joyful. Their response to that is they arrested the ones who healed him, verse 3. And that's what dead religion can make us do. It can make us try to shut down anything that threatens us. They only, not only arrested them, but they suggested that the healing was by the power of evil. So they say um, to Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? It's the same question they asked to Jesus when he healed people. Implying that he was possessed by Beelzebub, possessed by the devil. That this was coming out of the powers of darkness. So they are dead set against what is happening here. They're not rejoicing in this man's healing at all. They are angry and they're grasping for power. <clears throat> and one of the signs that uh, you're empty inside or the church is empty inside is when the church is angry because somebody else is being blessed. Like if another church is growing or another denomination is growing, um, you get angry because it's not to your advantage. Um, or even if you're somebody that... Um, 
you know, thinks of yourself as an especially great prayer or evangelist or Bible reader, and you're kind of threatened by somebody else's blessing or um, by their success or their gifting, um, that's dangerous. If you think of your teammate or your coworker or your roommate or your cousin or your neighbor's success and blessing as a threat to you, then there's, you're acting like you're empty, like you're desperate to fill some hole because there's no spirit in you when you're doing that. That's just coming out of the dead works of old religion. And his healing is so threatening to their power, they want to stop it from happening. They actually take measures to stop the healing from spreading. I mean, imagine being that opposed to what is good. In verse 17, they threaten them so that uh, the healing spreads no further among the people. And they're right to be threatened because it does spread, except that they're, they're opposed to blessings coming. And so the question to ask ourselves, has the desire for power, um, which often comes in the form of spiritual power. Let's not deceive ourselves that one of the greatest dangers is spiritual power and thinking that uh, you're righteous and that you're good and that you're better than other people. And has that caused us to um, suppress the truth even of blessings other places? Um, Look at verse 15, just the shocking suppression of the truth here. Uh, They say to themselves, a notable sign has been performed, evident to all. So they're even admitting that it's evident to everyone. We can't can't even deny it, they say. Like, they admit. And so then they say, uh, let's threaten them never to talk about that again. I mean, the foolishness of uh, these people is, is very much like our own foolishness, where they know something's true. They even say that it's true, and they want it to stop. They want it to disappear. Um... It's really hard to admit you're wrong when you have a lot at stake. It's very hard to admit you're wrong. Um, So don't think this is just them. My children often tell me I have a hard time admitting I'm wrong, and I always deny that, which they say then affirms their proposition that I don't like to admit that I'm wrong. But it's true, I'll say, you know, very small examples, like we should eat at Pancho Villa's tonight. It's, uh, It's never crowded right now and it, it takes a really short trip to get there and then we'll like hit traffic or something it takes forever to get there hit all the lights it's completely crowded and um they'll say you dad you know you were totally wrong i was like well you know i didn't know about all the lights and it's never crowded so i just will never admit that i'm wrong or they'll say we need to go 85 to charlotte because i-40 always has those huge traffic jams at lake norman and i'll be like well um you know, it's not this time. You know, for some reason, I have a good feeling about this time. And then, of course, I'm totally wrong and will not admit it. Um, and it's just a shocking thing about humans that even when a criminal is caught, like, red-handed in the act of a crime, we will not admit that it's true. It's one of the biggest problems, and it's their biggest problem. It's their biggest problem. If they would just repent at any point, it would all be fine. We're going to see that next week with Ananias and Sapphira. If they had just admitted that they had held back money, it would have been fine. So the problem is not that we sin. The problem is that we cover up and deny over and over and over again. And I'll tell you a great way to improve your marriage. This is pro tip on marriage is simply practice admitting that you're wrong. Like make a game out of it. You know, like you're picking up coins along the way every time you repent for something. But my counselor always told me, Repentance is not a duty, it's a gift. So you should never say, I have to repent. You should say, I get to repent. Like, think about all the opportunities you have to repent. So my wife recently said, in a really sweet way, 
She's like, you know how our daughter Roosevelt serves really well in the house and kind of does things for us? She's like, you don't do that all that much. And I, I said to myself, this is your chance to repent. This is, it's true and you need to repent. And then I said to her, I wish, well, I wish you didn't get so mad about things. Which is, again, not only denying, it's, it's just a classic misdirection of the conversation. Because that didn't address the fact that she said to me that thing at all. Had nothing to do. I just changed the subject 100%. And I, by the way, you don't have to be married to do this. So <laughs> I'm not leaving out single people. Um, everyone has the opportunity to do this all the time with your friends or your brother or sister or parents or coworkers. You know, nobody feels like that we're witnessing the reign of Christ when we have all the answers. That's not really a very attractive witness to the reign of Christ. That's actually the opposite. If you're always right, that's not a witness to the fact that Christ reigns. It's when you say, I'm wrong. Um, I need help, and I'm sorry that people say, well, there must be someone reigning over this person, or they would never do that. That's, that's a witness. So don't silence the critics like these Sadducees did. In verse 18, it says, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Like, that'll stop them. You know, like, we, we're really, we're gonna, if we threaten them enough, I'm sure they're going to stop doing that. <clears throat> and of course, they didn't. And I love Peter's response. It's very much Christ-like, which is because Christ is speaking through him. Literally, the spirit of Christ is animating Peter because we believe he is the ascended Lord and that we are now vessels of his body. And so when Peter says this thing, it's like Christ is speaking through him. And it's very ironic, like Christ often was. Like Jesus always asked the religious leaders, have you never read where God says in the book of Genesis, uh, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. I mean, he's always saying, have you never read, like, which is incredibly insulting and cutting. And in this, in this way, Jesus, uh, through Peter, is saying, verse 18, in response to them, uh, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you or God, who knows? You know, who, who could ever know a question like that? Uh, he's being incredibly ironic and cutting by asking them this question. And actually, it's Jesus trying to reach them still, which is incredibly loving that he's not given up on these Sadducees in all of their unbelief, in their suppression of the truth, and their threatening. It's going to become murderous soon, but he is not giving up on them. It's like the way that Moses came to Pharaoh over and over and over again. Let my people go. Let my people go. Repent, repent, repent. And Pharaoh just kept hardening his heart, and so do they. So that's, that's what you don't want to be, is, uh, is dead religion, uh, emptied of the presence of the Holy Spirit, Clinging to your power and prestige and control and not admitting you're wrong and not asking for help. Versus what I'm about to talk about is the living temple where uh, Peter and John, who are just like the Pharisees, they're not any better as people. They are just as sinful in their nature. Um, because of the Holy Spirit inside of them, because they're full of the Spirit, they can renounce themselves and they can ask for help from God and they can pray. And prayer is the exact opposite of dead religion and dead works. <clears throat> So Peter is so full of spirit that unlike these uh, Sadducees, he wants to just disappear into Jesus' glory. He wants to decrease so that Jesus can increase. And so when they ask, by what power or name did you do this, they do not say by our name and by our power, which would be very tempting to say. But they do exactly the opposite. They say it's not by our name. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, verse 10. By this name, this man as well. And Peter knows that even his ability to speak those words, even that ability to say those things he just said is not from him. 
He knows that it's welling up through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Peter said this filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like a glass of beer if one drinks beer, which I don't, but it's like a glass of beer where the foam spills out over the top. It's just like the Holy Spirit is filling him so much that um, it is overflowing. Peter said this filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of times you kind of know it when you're saying things and um, it's just overflowing with the Spirit. You kind of know that sometimes. You say something, you can't believe you said it. It was so wise or profound. Um, these, these folks do not want their name in lights. They, they are not trying to get the glory. It's their words themselves are overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I love the phrase hero ball that I don't know who invented that. I tried to look up who invented that. It was some sports writer for ESPN, but it was not uh, clear who did it. But um, the word hero ball is applied mostly in basketball, but I think other sports as well. When one player on the team tries to be the hero and take all the big shots, make all the big plays, uh, do something really fancy. Uh, The classic, uh, if you know anything about basketball, the the classic hero ball person is um, Russell Westbrook. Uh, and maybe James Harden. But they're, they're out there like, I'm carrying the team by myself. You know, I'm helping Jesus win the game. I'm putting them on my back and I'm going to carry them to the finish line. And that's exactly the opposite of what prayer is about. Uh, we can all play spiritual hero ball. I play hero, hero ball in my mind all the time. Thinking that um, I'm kind of the one like carrying the torch and doing the good deeds, and that it's about me, and I'm the one out there by myself, on my own. I mean, America like, makes us want to be like this. Think this way. Think individualistically. And this hero ball mindset where you're going to make all the big plays, you're going to do all the impressive things. And, and corporate prayer just completely cuts that off at the root. Uh, because you cannot feel that way when you're praying with a bunch of people. And that's exactly what they do. When they're threatened by the Sadducees, Peter and John, they don't take out a lawsuit. They don't run to the ACLU. They, they do not petition to the government that we should not be threatened by this. You know, we should not, this should not be happening. We have our rights. They don't say that. They went to their friends and they lifted their voices together and they actually prayed for more boldness. They prayed to be put in more danger. It's quite an astonishing thing. It's definitely the overflow of the Holy Spirit or else we would never do that. Um, But don't think of it like hero ball. Uh, Think of it like children running to their dad when they're in need. I mean, they know they're in need. And it says in verse 29, they said, help us, help us, Father, to keep speaking boldly because we know we're cowards. Because Peter denied Jesus three times, only about 40, 50 days earlier. So it's not like he thinks the power's in him because he knows that he is a coward. And, and, And so are we all. Um, if anyone shares the gospel easily and boldly, you know, come talk to me afterwards. I don't know, I don't know how to do that. But I do know that the only time we ever do that is when the Holy Spirit is lifting us up. And so they pray, help us not to give up or lose heart or cave into fear. And I would say the supreme sign and wonder, I mean, I keep talking about signs and wonders, which is often things like healing is a, is a great example of one. Reconciliation is a great example of a sign and a wonder that Jesus reigns. But I think the supreme one is, is prayer. When we pray together. And Austin always says when he does the community update that prayer is the heartbeat of our church. We really believe that. Uh, we don't believe our church would have grown at all. Certainly would have grown, not grown in a healthy way without prayer. And without 
this sign and wonder, this is like one big giant empty building. It just doesn't have a reason for existing. It becomes all about power and prestige and control and making your name great. And again, their prayer is not protect us from danger or make us safe. And I just think about how many churches the, uh, in America are praying that, like, like the government's about to destroy us, or you know, businesses are going to like take us down, and so we've got to we got to be protected. They are not saying protect me; they're saying fill me with more spirit so that I can go out and be more bold and be persecuted and be threatened, which is exactly the opposite of our our nature, which is to protect and defend and safety at all costs. And verse 31 says, when they, when they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak with boldness. And again, filling with the Holy Spirit, that's what they wanted. They wanted, I compared it to like a nuclear reactor when I talked about Pentecost and how every single Christian has that inside of them if they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Like a nuclear power plant and, the, and just it's like radiating power coming out of them, which enables them to speak with boldness because the Holy of Holies is inside of them, which was in that central area of the temple behind the curtain where the cherubim were and the Shekinah glory was there. And the book of Acts says that that is in us, that we as the church have that glory. And so prayer is a witness that Jesus reigns and not us. And he loves to get things done through prayer because of that, because you would take the credit otherwise. Uh, because you would think it's about you. You'd be playing hero ball. And prayer is anti-control, anti-power, anti-pride. You can't take credit for anything when you're sitting there praying. So think about where you have opportunities to do this. I mean, there is a Thursday prayer meeting, but there's tons of opportunities in your small groups. I love that our small group has decided that we're going to take the last part of our time and we're going to just pray for each other. Um, small groups are a great place to pray, but a lot of people are not in small groups, and that's fine. And pray other places. Pray in your... Um, in your office or with your family, um, in a dorm room with your roommate, um, around a table at lunch, at dinner, at breakfast, uh, anywhere. Uh, but this is, again, this is, the, this is the proof of the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit is that we pray together. And I know it can be awkward and tricky and sometimes we don't know what words to use, uh, but it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, some of the most beautiful prayers are the ones where you don't really know what you're saying. I remember the first time I ever prayed out loud after I became converted. It was very hard. I became, I was an atheist, became a Christian, and then like a year and a half later, I, I prayed out loud for the first time in a group, and that was really hard. So I'm not saying this is easy, but this is a sign and a wonder. It says in verse 11 that Jesus, the rejected stone, is the cornerstone of the church, which means the cornerstone defines the shape of the building. There's a cornerstone right out there, and it says this is the cornerstone, and that defines you know, the plumb line, the 90-degree angle. What makes it stand? If the cornerstone is off, the whole building falls. And the cornerstone is the defining characteristic of the common life of our church is self-renunciation. It says that Jesus, the rejected stone in verse 11, is the cornerstone. So what defines us is not self, but the rejection of self and, and going to God and asking him for help. And, you know, the very famous line in this passage um, is verse 12, there is salvation in no other name. And that's true. And I believe that. And I know it's hard. I know that cuts against a pluralistic culture uh, where we love diversity and inclusion. And I understand how that's difficult. But just know that it's not saying we're the best. That is not what that's saying. 
That's not a bid for supremacy or be the exact opposite of the rejected stone. What that is saying is that the only kind of salvation there ever could be and ever is, because we're so weak and dead, is it's got to be in the shape of a cross. It's got to be a crucified salvation. That's what that's, that claim is maintaining that for me to be saved, the Savior's got to plunge all the way down from the heights of heaven into my death and despair and my damnation and lift me up all the way into his glory and joy in life. That, that salvation's got to come all the way down and lift me all the way back up or it's not salvation, that it's not salvation by works. Everything else is merit and achievement and prestige and power and control. All your good works, that's all they are. When we say there is salvation and no one else, we're saying that, that we have to be completely rescued from beginning to end, from A to Z. It has got to be by faith in God's rescue alone. And, and only that kind of salvation makes you want to pray because it completely breaks your pride and it makes you cry out for mercy because you had to be um, completely rescued, dead at the bottom of the ocean in all your sin and trespass. Uh, the Thursday morning prayer is not a thing where you say, uh, go, you know, look what I just did. I mean, you, don't, you wouldn't say to someone, I just went to someone's house for an hour and sat still in their living room. That's just not an impressive thing. It's not something you would boast about. It's not something that makes you feel good. In fact, you go there and you're tired and admittedly sometimes bored. Okay, I would say that. At times bored. Uh, sometimes you're falling asleep. You're looking at the patterns in the carpet and you're falling asleep. And all those things happen in that prayer meeting. Um, but... It does remind us uh, who our dad is, who our father is. It reminds us what kind of savior we have. And my favorite line in this passage, in fact, I looked over at my wife and we nodded and smiled when this was read, um, is that in verse 28, it's just my favorite thing, I think, about the whole Bible. I say it all the time. Um, the, the one that you crucified, they, Peter says to them, you know, you crucified Jesus. It was your fault. I mean, it was all of our faults. Peter was part of it too. But, but he's telling these religious Sadducees, you, you crucified him. You knew what you were doing. But what you did was exactly what God planned to do to save us all, including you. That when they crucified Jesus, they did exactly what you had predestinated to take place. Down to the very placement of the nails. Everything was exactly what God did. Which is another way of saying that God takes all of our hate and all of our rebellion and all of our opposition to him and he uses that to redeem us. That he would take the worst thing that we've ever done to him and use that to actually save us, to bless us. That he would take even these Sadducees and all of their opposition to Christ and he would use that to save, to bless. In other words, it's saying he does all the work from beginning to end. Even when we're like asleep, like Abraham, when God saved him, when we're dead in our trespasses, um, God gives us his greatest gifts while we are betraying him. And that is, that is the great message of the gospel. Um, that on the night that...
And remember, we love these rascals. <laughs>